so the Word of God was written over a period of uh, 1,500 years by 40 different authors from every walk of life. It was written by prophets, kings, servants, fishermen, poets, doctors, herdsmen, and even a former tax collector. It was written on three different continents. It was originally written in three different languages. We've got Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek. And yet, throughout the books of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, we find unity in its message. And absolutely, it's absolutely amazing that it, over a period of 1,500 years, there's that kind of unity in the message that God has for us. More than that, the Bible is said to be, to use theological terms, uh, inerrant. And it's said to be infallible. And, it's, and we're going to look at that this morning. Um, it's said to be inspired. We're going to look at the, the inspiration of Scripture this morning. And, but I want to look at those terms really quick because, well, because it's good to have a definition of what they mean. What does inspired mean? Well, inspired means that the Holy Spirit divinely and supernaturally influenced the biblical writers using their own biblical, using their own personalities, their individual personalities. That was the God didn't say, you know what, you're you're a fisherman and you're a little bit rough, and so, uh, you, you know, but I'm gonna I, I'm gonna put words in your mouth that you wouldn't normally speak. No, no, God used their personalities so that the very words and intended meaning of God's revelation would be recorded as God intended. That's what inspiration is. It's the Holy Spirit that influenced men to write. Now, uh, inerrant. What does that mean? The scripture is error-free in its um, original writings. Error-free. There's no mistakes. It implies that the Bible can, contains neither material errors nor in, uh, internal contradictions in the original writings. Now, of course, when something's copied over and over and over again, you might get a few tiny little errors and there are differences between manuscripts but it's very it doesn't change the message whatsoever those are human errors but in the original writing and what we have today is absolutely a miracle what we have in the word of god now infallible what does that mean it is incapable of error that's what infallible means it's if something is infallible it is never wrong and thus absolutely trustworthy. You might wonder why all of these different terms would have to be used to describe how uh, the Bible came to us. Couldn't we just say that the Bible is the Word of God and then just accept that? Well, yeah, that's God's Word. So it's, you know, it's true and we should believe it and we should live by it. Charles Ryrie answers this way, why we need big words like that. Formerly, all that was necessary to affirm one's belief in the full inspiration was the statement, I believe in the inspiration of the Bible. So he said that's all we needed at first. But when some did not extend inspiration to the words of the text, it became necessary to say, I believe in the verbal inspiration of the Bible. And then, to counter the teaching that not all parts of the Bible were inspired, one had to say, I believe in the verbal plenary inspiration of the Bible. And then, because some did not want to 
ascribe total accuracy to the Bible, it was necessary to say, I believe in the verbal, plenary, infallible, inerrant inspiration of the Bible. But then, <laughs> infallible and inerrant began to be limited to matters of faith only rather than also embracing all that the Bible records, including historical facts, genealogies, accounts of creation, etc. And so it became necessary to add the concept of unlimited inerrancy. And I'm not going to read the whole list. Each addition to the basic statement arose because of erroneous teaching. And the Bible is still under attack. The associated gospels that's are the denomination of which we're a part. Their statement of faith begins like this. The Bible, both the Old and New Testaments, is the complete word of God. As originally given, it is verbally inspired, without error, and entirely trustworthy. The Bible constitutes supreme authority in all matters of faith, teaching, and behavior. The Bible has Jesus Christ as its focus and fulfillment. And then the references for that is in 2 Peter, 2 Timothy, Luke, and Matthew. In this message on inspiration, we will look at Paul's understanding of the inspiration of the scriptures. How far does it go and what are the implications for us? How far does the, impl how far does the inspiration of scripture go and what does that imply for us? Well, my text is just two verses in 2 Timothy. We're going to look at more than that. But two verses in 2 Timothy. Chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. You've heard these before. I'm sure you have. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Well, I'm going to look at four things. My outline is Paul's understanding of inspiration, uh, Paul's references, Paul's great statement, which is what we just read, and then our response. <clears throat> well, Paul's understanding, we've already noted last Sunday that Paul was very, very well educated. He had, he had the equivalent of like a couple of doctorate degrees by the time he was 21. And so he knew the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament, better than anybody. He wouldn't give it another thought, but um, just so you know what Paul knew, I'll spend a little bit of time showing that the Old Testament itself claimed to be God's word. And this is what Paul believed, that the Old Testament was the very word of God. And he knew it, and he could quote it, and he could, and, and, and he could make arguments and build arguments about it. And so to start in the Old Testament, you will read the Lord says or something like, like it, it, it. This is what the Lord says or thus says the Lord. That, that's God directly speaking through a prophet. And that is said over 800 times in the Old Testament. This is what God says. And then the prophet would say exactly what God told him to say. That's that's God speaking directly to man through a prophet. And that's over 800 times. For example, um, 
So there, there can be no doubt that the writers believed that what they were preaching or prophesying came directly from the Lord. Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh, and what did they say? Thus says the Lord, let my people go. Right? And it, it was a message from God. And, and so that was, that was verbally inspired from the Lord. The law, okay, Paul would have known the Psalms and the claims found uh, there. For example, um, this is from Psalm 19, verses 7 to 11. The law, or the Torah, as, as that, they, that would be the Old Testament, right? Or the, the first five books. Um, and the whole, actually the whole Bible. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true, the righteousness and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. This is what Paul understood as to what the Old Testament, that the Old Testament was inspired. There are many, many more examples in all these texts and many more. The writers of the Old Testament believed that they were recording the very words of God. And so Paul would be confident in quoting from the Old Testament to support his teaching. For example, in 1 Corinthians 15, 45, he said, And so it is written, The first man, Adam, became a, li became a living being. That's from Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7. And then, or 2 Corinthians 6, 2, Paul says, For he says, In a favorable, in a favorable time I will listen... I listened to you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is a favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And that's from a, uh, Isaiah 49.8. Paul's making a quote. Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor, I have answered you. In a day of salvation I have helped you. And so Paul's quoting from the Old Testament as saying, this is what it says. This is what the Old Testament says. It's the word of God. So Paul's use of the Old Testament is extensive. Why? Because it's God's word. Because you can't argue with God's word. It's not Paul's opinion. It's God speaking to us. And that's why he used, because it has authority. God's word has authority. The author of Hebrews, which I personally believe was Paul, starts his letter off God who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past by, to the fathers by the prophets. God is speaking to his people. And it is recorded and we know it right here. This is God's word. It's clear Paul believed in the inspiration of God's word. He referenced it and he taught it. That's the Old Testament. But what about Paul's own writings? It's a fair question. What about the New Testament? Did God, continue, did, did God continue to speak through the prophets? Did God continue to speak through those that he had chosen? Were they to be considered the inspired word of God, their writings? Were they considered authoritative? 
Well, Paul has some pretty good references. When a woman, let's call her name Mary, was offered a high-level student services position at a prestigious uh, college, she was thrilled to accept. But two years later, Mary was fired despite strong performance reviews and, and a reputation as being a rising star in the college. She was fired. And why was, why was she fired? The reason? She lied on her resume. She lied on her resume and got caught. In a new study, it's been revealed that 76% of people seeking employment have lied on their resume. Three quarters of the resumes that you will receive, people will lie on the resume to make themselves look better so that they'll get a better job. Isn't that something? They will lie on their resume. And it says um, 50% say they do it all the time. 50%. Besides telling the truth, you might want to ask some credible references. Um, uh, you, you might want to ask some credible reference to support your bid for employment, besides telling the truth of, uh, as to... Now, Paul's resume uh, it looks really good, doesn't it? I mean, his, his education, as we discussed last Sunday, did he cheat on his resume? Was he really that good? Was Paul really that good? All of his, well, I mean, so very well educated, stubbornly zealous, and sure to make a difference wherever he was placed. I want a job, says Paul. Was he really that good? Paul also claimed to receive the gospel direct by direct revelation from Jesus. Well, that's, that's really something on a resume, isn't it? Galatians 1. That would make Paul's writings the word of God. If he received what he taught, what he wrote down, if he received it directly from Jesus Christ, that would make it God's word, wouldn't it? If he received that from Jesus. And that's what he's claiming in his resume. So that's a pretty big claim. And he's not afraid to back it up in his letters. He calls himself an apostle, handpicked. Nine times in his letters, he opens with this, this title of apostle, or, the, or he draws attention to the fact that he's called to be a, an apostle from the Lord. And, and, so, and during his epistles, sometimes he defends that position. Uh, Jesus gave himself a Jesus who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. He said, I'm speaking the truth in Christ and not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. That's First Timothy 2, 6 and 7. And so he calls himself a champion of truth separating himself from false apostles. Paul is very concerned with the naivety of the Corinthian church. From his experience, the Corinthians would receive anybody. They would believe anybody. If somebody came claiming to be a preacher or an apostle, they would just receive him. Paul exclaims, as the truth of Christ is in me, no one shall stop me from this boasting or preaching in the regions of Archaea. 
And that's 2 Corinthians 11.10. And then he exposes the ones that come preaching a different version of Jesus as false apostles, deceitful workers, by transforming, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And then he says, and no wonder, because even demons, even Satan uh, it, it transforms himself or is, is a fake and transforms himself into an angel of light. And he says in uh, Galatians 1.9, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received from him, let him be accursed. Let him. He said even angels, if an angel comes and preaches something other than I've already told you, no, it's not appropriate. What I received, I received by revelation from Christ, he says. And Paul's definitely making the claim to be a teacher of truth. I would go on about Paul's claims, but, you know, I, I, I do want to get to his references, two of his references anyway. If you look to hire a carpenter, you might want a carpenter to do some renovations in your house. Uh, there's... You might look at their work first, right? What have they done in the past that is so that you would trust them to do your work, right? And so you would look at their work. And then you might want to ask somebody that has had them come and do work in, at their house. And you would ask them, how is this man? And, and so the, in, in that way, you're getting a couple of references before you hire your carpenter. And so Paul has references. First of all, his reference is suffering and sacrifice. Look at Paul's life. You look at Paul's life, it is well documented in Paul's and Luke's writing how much Paul went through. Who would willingly go through all of that while living and teaching a lie? The Holy Spirit led him uh, at one point to, to head to Jerusalem. He says in Acts chapter 20, verse 22, and see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem. He's saying the Spirit of God is just, I have to go. I can't stay where I am. I have to go to Jerusalem. He says, I, I'm bound by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. And, and uh, then... As he continues toward Jerusalem, he is prophesied over. Luke writes, and as we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. When he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit. Thus says the Holy Spirit. So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now when he had heard these things, both we and those from that place pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. And then Paul answered, What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. That's Acts 21, verses 10 to 13. You see, Paul knew the Spirit of God was driving him to Jerusalem. And it was prophesied over him that he would be bound. He knew. 
Paul knew that he would be taken at Jerusalem, and yet it wasn't a problem for him because the Holy Spirit led him because he spoke the truth and he spoke the words of God. That's a pretty good resume as to a man that is being led and influenced by the Holy Spirit. Well, second, the, the, the second one, so that's his life. Paul lived a life where he wasn't afraid of suffering and sacrifice. He absolutely believed that what he was doing was true. But the second one, this is interesting, is now, remember I said about the carpenter, his work, and then maybe a person that had something done? Well, this is very similar. First Paul's work, and then Peter. Then the apostle Peter. He's one of Jesus' closest students. Gives Paul this unequivocal support. In Second Peter chapter 3, Peter is writing to the believers concerning the second coming of Jesus. He encourages them to live godly so that, the, so that when Jesus comes, they're ready to meet him. And then he says this, and count the patience of the Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some in them that are hard to understand which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. What is Peter saying there? Did you hear that? Peter is saying that Paul's letters are to be considered scripture. Paul's writing, according to the Apostle Peter, are scripture. So that's a pretty good that that's pretty good on his resume, those references. Paul had some pretty solid references. Well, and then Paul's great statement, and we've just read that. But before we read, I want to read Peter's statement. Um, Peter and Paul are in complete agreement. Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 to 21, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from anyone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever uh, produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's what Peter said concerning the Word of God. That's Peter's version of inspiration. It's a little more poetic than Paul's. Paul kind of gets right to the point, but Peter, just he, till the star rises in your hearts, it's so poetic and so unfisherman-like. He was getting soft in his old age, maybe, Peter. He was getting all fancy with his words. But let's read 2 Timothy again, Paul's version. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Well, 
Now, if you compare these two statements, Peter is saying the same thing, but again, in a more poetic way. Um, and, and so let's pay attention. Let's let God's word light us up. This is it's kind of how Peter is saying it. Let God's word light you up. And I think um, we would do well to consider Paul's message the same. Now, let's look at four um, divide this into four things here. Four truths. First of all, God's word is inspired. We've already talked about what that means. Inspiration means that the Holy Spirit divinely and supernaturally influenced the biblical writers using their own individual personalities so that the very words and intended meaning of God's revelation would be recorded as God intended. I like that many of the translators say God breathed. Scripture is God-breathed. That corresponds, you know, that corresponds to God's character. Is that God God is true. God is, um, he's righteous. And that God's word wouldn't be any different than God's character. It's true and righteous. And then God's word is profitable. Profit, profitability means um, useful or helpful. There are many things that we do that are not useful, aren't there? <laughs> um, how many hours of television do we watch, me included? That's not very useful. It really doesn't do us any good, does it? It's just entertainment. How, how much good can it do? Uh, how useful is that? In the story of the talents, Matthew chapter 25, Jesus calls the servant unprofitable who buried his talent and didn't use it. He called him unprofitable. He did not invest in what was given to him by his master. And I, I, I think we should well pay attention. God's word is profitable. It will benefit us. It is good for us. And, and, in, and I, in speaking of God's word... Um, in Isaiah 55:11, I send it out and it always produces fruit. It will accomplish all I want it to and it will prosper everywhere I send it. God's word is profitable. You will not go wrong in investing in God's word. And then number three, God's word is transformative. And there are, there are like four words that Paul uses here. He says, uh, doctrine, it's for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and instruction in righteousness. So four things, how it transforms us. Paul reminds this young apprentice, Timothy, and you and I, by the way, that God's word really does transform us if we get into it. First, in doctrine. Now, Christianity is a religion focused, uh, founded on a message of good news rooted in the significance of, of the life of Jesus Christ. Doctrine refers to the entire body of essential theological truths that define and describe that message. Doctrine. That's another big word, isn't it? Doctrine. But it means, it, it just means the truth. What the framework for the truth. Second is reproof, in reproof. Now, reproof is an expression of strong disapproval. 
as we read the Word of God, the Word of God reads us. You ever have that happen? You're reading God's Word, and then all of a sudden, there's something inside of you that goes, oh, <laughs> I'm not measuring up very good to this. This is what God's Word says, but now it's exposing me for who I am. I have missed the mark. I have fallen short. I'm reading the word of God, but it's reading me, and it doesn't, and, 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 and it hurts. God's word tells you where you're falling short. Not only that, but then it leads to the third thing, which is correction. And, and that's what Paul says. Reproof is incomplete without correction. Someone has said correction is Scripture's positive provision for those who accept its negative reproof. Finally, we have the word instruction, although I think a better translation is training. Because some translations say training. Training implies continued study and discipline as the word is connected to disciple, discipline. Um, training is in righteousness, growing in, in character. And so in all of that, we are transformed as we study God's word. And then, number four, God's word is missional. Now, complete and nothing lacking. That's um, it, it, We're fully equipped for what? We're complete and nothing lacking, fully equipped for what? That's where missional comes in, for every good work. That's what missional is. And you don't keep what you have learned on the shelf just in case you need it someday. You, you know, that's, you, you need it now, you need it tomorrow, and you need it every day after that. You are equipped and ready to make a positive difference in the world, loving your neighbors, drawing them to Christ through your good work, through your obedience to the Word of God. And don't we want that in our lives? Don't we want that to be complete, to be full, to be fulfilled, to be all that God has created us to be and not just complete for ourselves, but equipped for every good work? Don't we want that? The church needs that today, doesn't it? More and more the church needs that. Well, what's our response then to this, the inspiration of the scriptures? The Bible is the message he intended for humanity that God intended. It is, this scripture is God-breathed. It's never wrong and it's absolutely trustworthy. Why is it so important that we believe what Paul says about God's word? Why is it so important? You know, there, there, there are churches that claim to be, you know, part of the Christian, claim to be following Jesus, but they don't believe in God's word. They have their own Jesus. They've set up their own God. They've set up anything. It doesn't look like Christianity at all. They don't look like they're following Jesus at all. And so why is it important that we follow God's word and that we treat it as God's word, that it came right from the Lord? Why is it important? Well, you know what happens. We see it all around us. We see it in government. We see it in industry. We see it in culture. When over 70% of Canadians believe there's no moral issue.
for sexual experience. You know, the 60s, uh, there was a, the, they call it, is it called the sexual revolution, I think, in the, in the 60s? Well, it never stopped. And why did that happen? And why is it, why is it come into our churches? Why? Because, because they don't, because people don't believe that this is true. Because if they believed it was true, it would, it would inform their lives. Now, over, when over 60% of Canadians believe that there's no moral issue with doctor-assisted suicide, by the way, congratulations, Canada. You're number one in the world for doctor-assisted suicide. And when people don't believe what's in this book, then all kinds of other things will creep in and take over. And we're, we're, we're seeing the fruit of the rejection of God's word. It, you know, God's word is true and relevant for today. And we would live in a better world if people would believe it. When a 50-year-old man can identify as a teenage girl and change with them in their change room and compete against them in their swimming competitions and parents say nothing and coaches and, and the facility operators say nothing and the police say nothing, you know that the word of God has been rejected. It's absolutely disgusting that that could happen in Canada. And it's making news in the U.S., What happens when you pick and choose what to believe in God's book? In Paul's words, the, 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 the arrival of the lawless one will be by Satan's working with all kinds of miracles and signs and false wonders and with every kind of evil deception directed against those who are perishing because they found no place in their hearts for the truth. No place in their hearts for the truth. In other words, they didn't believe it. J.I. Packer once said, if I were the devil, one of my first aims would be to stop folks from digging into the Bible. Either this is true, or it's not. There's no picking and choosing what is acceptable for you and what is not. Once you and I are face to face with the word of God, we either accept it or reject it. Jesus becomes the two-edged sword that cuts right down the middle, dividing us into believers and non-believers. John Powell said that. Isn't it time that we gave God's word the attention that it deserves? 